Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Though Paul has had much to say to the Jewish people up to this point in his letter, he'll now turn his attention to his Gentile listeners. Beginning in Romans 11.13, he says, I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In turning to address the Gentiles, Paul wanted them to understand that although they were the focus of his ministry, he had not forgotten about his countrymen. Paul even reveals that he hoped that the transformed lives of the Gentiles would arouse the Jews to envy the relationship that they had with God and that that would cause the Jews to want to know more about Jesus. It is true that we can influence others by our actions, as showing kindness and peace and an inner strength from God can really attract those who do not know Christ, causing them to want to experience the same kind of transformation in their own lives. It was Paul's hope that the Jews would seek to entrust themselves to Jesus also, once they saw the transformation that had occurred in the lives of the Gentiles around them. And Paul was delighted about what that might mean for God's kingdom, because if the Jews' rejection of Christ had accomplished so much in bringing the Gentiles to God, he could hardly imagine how glorious it would be when the Jews turned from death to life to receive their own Messiah. Paul goes on in verse 16 to declare, If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Here, Paul uses two pictures meaning the same thing. In speaking of the dough, he's really referring to the custom of offering the first part of the bread made from the grain harvest to the Lord, so that the whole harvest would be holy or blessed by him. In this case, though, Paul is really speaking about the fact that because God had so graciously accepted the first Jewish converts, like Paul and the other apostles, all other Jews who would recognize the Lord Jesus would be accepted by God in the same way. The other picture he uses is that of a tree, saying that if the root is holy, then everything that later grows from it will be as well. Paul then goes on to compare the family of God to an olive tree. In this family tree, the people of Israel are the natural branches and the Gentiles are the branches of a wild olive tree that have been grafted in. I understand that some of us may be unfamiliar with the agricultural technique of grafting, but this is a process that's used to join parts of two or more different plants together so that they grow as a single plant. In grafting, the upper part of one plant grows on the root stock of another. 
The grafted branch depends on the original plant for life, and it's a wonderful way to describe what God has done in joining Jew and Gentile together in one family. Look at verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over or consider yourself to be superior to those branches. If you do, Consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. The Jewish people who had disconnected themselves from the living God had indeed withered and died, spiritually speaking, and so these branches had been broken off, but other wild olive shoots had been grafted into their place. Paul warns us as Gentiles who've been grafted into God's family that we're not to consider ourselves superior or more important than those branches who were broken off. After all, there would be no Christianity if there hadn't been Judaism first. We need to hold all the more closely to the Lord ourselves. Jesus speaks of the vital importance of remaining connected to him in John 15 verses 5 to 6. There he says, You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. We have to stay connected to the Lord. And Paul continues in chapter 11 verse 22 here to say, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. We need to continue in him, grateful for his kindness to us. And truth be told, the Gentiles cannot view Israel as a lost cause, for Paul goes on to reveal God's promise in verse 23, when he says about those natural branches, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? You see, if God had been able to graft the Gentiles into his people, how much more easily will he be able to restore Israel? The only criteria being that the Jews do not persist in unbelief regarding Jesus Christ. In verse 25, Paul continues speaking to his Gentile readers. He says, 
I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Paul was sure that the hardening of Israel's heart was not a permanent thing. Rather, it had happened so that God's plan for mankind could be completed. Their hearts had been hardened, in part, until the full number of the Gentiles had come in. Paul was sure that God's chosen people, the Jews, did still have a special place in God's plan. The true Israel of God will indeed be saved, and Paul reminds his readers of a promise God had made to the Jewish people through the prophet Isaiah. He says, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God's rejection of the Jews could not be permanent, for he had promised in Isaiah 59.20 that he would send a deliverer to turn them away from godlessness. He had promised that there would be a day when he would take away Israel's sin. For now, though, Paul says in verse 28, As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Paul knew that as far as the good news of Jesus Christ was concerned, many Jewish people were opposed to it. However, even though they had rejected Jesus, God still loved them, and his gifts and his call to them was unchangeable. Paul hoped that the Gentiles would understand that just as God had been merciful to them, despite their previous disobedience, God would also one day be merciful to the Jews when they turned to him in repentance as the Gentiles had. It truly proves that God has no favorites, for Jew and Gentile alike have both been disobedient, and yet God is willing to show his remarkable mercy to both groups. Paul acknowledged in verse 25 there that God's dealings with Israel are indeed a mystery, but in verse 32 he assures us it is a mystery that began with and will end with mercy for everyone. This has been a long section about the Jewish people, hasn't it? Beginning in Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul has had much to teach us. But as he comes to the end of his argument, it may be helpful for me to summarize all that he said over the past three chapters. He revealed that Israel is God's chosen people and they have been given many privileges and advantages. However, to be part of Israel is more than a matter of racial descent. There's always been something that Paul reveals as God's election at work, resulting in a remnant of those who were truly faithful to him.
This selection of the faithful of God as the true Israel is not unfair, for God has the right to do as he sees fit. Paul reveals that God did harden the Jews' hearts, but it was only so that the door to the Gentiles might be opened. Israel had made the terrible mistake of depending on their own achievements and upon their own legalistic righteousness, rather than trusting in God's goodness and his provision of righteousness by faith. However, though the Gentiles had come into God's family by faith, they were not to have pride, for they were wild olive branches grafted into God's people by his grace and mercy. Paul emphasized the fact that this is not the end of the Jews, for God will not give up on his covenant people. Eventually, they will be so amazed at the relationship between the Gentile believers and God that they themselves will be brought to repentance and faith in Christ, becoming true members of Abraham's family of faith and being transformed together by the power of God's Spirit. Paul was a man of incredible intellect. He had thought long and hard about God's plan and his purposes, and yet at the end of all of his contemplation, Paul knew that he still didn't have all the answers to his questions. And all he could do was break forth into a doxology, a hymn of praise to God, glorifying God for his great and marvelous plan for mankind's salvation. He says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how uncertain his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory for ever. Amen. God's thoughts and actions are sometimes far beyond our understanding, but then he is God, and quite honestly, none of us are owed an explanation for anything. However, even if we don't always fully grasp God's purposes and his reason for acting as he does at times, we can all trust in his absolute love and power. He is sovereign and he is just and all glory belongs to him forever and ever. As Paul transitions into the final section of his letter in chapters 12 through 16, he begins to address the practical side of faith and how we should live as believers whose sins are forgiven and who have received God's mercy and grace because of Christ. He urges all of us in chapter 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Notice here how Paul says that because of God's great mercy shown to us in Christ, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy 
holy and pleasing to God. We are not just to present our spirits or our minds to the Lord. We are to serve him with our whole selves. And he must be Lord over what we do physically as well. For as he said in Romans 6, we are to yield our members, in other words, the parts of our physical bodies to him as instruments of righteousness. God is interested in every part of us as we die to self and live for him. That's what Paul means when he says that we are to be living sacrifices, for it is as we continually die to our selfish desires and live according to Christ's will that we will be holy and pleasing to him. Paul defines worship in a new way. The real worship of God isn't just something that happens in church on a Sunday. It's part of everything we do in every part of our day. What Paul is asking for here is an intentional change in the way that we live. God does not want us to conform any longer to the pattern of this world. In other words, we're no longer to match our lives to the fashion of the world around us. We cannot live as we once did. And we cannot live as chameleons either, going back and forth between the two worlds, trying to blend into each one. Rather, Paul calls us to a different life, which is the natural outworking of a renewed mind. For as we submit more and more to Christ's authority, we will begin to think like him. And the more time we spend in his word and then acting upon what it says, the more we will be able to know God's good, pleasing and perfect will. With Christ at the center of our lives, we shall be transformed from the inside out. And Paul warns that transformation will change the way that we think about ourselves and others. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Old habits are sometimes really difficult to break, and knowing how mankind's hearts are so easily drawn to pride, Paul calls us first to humility. He tells us to think soberly about ourselves. We're not to think of ourselves as being superior to others. However, we're not to think of ourselves as being worms either. Jesus is the best example of this kind of sober thinking. He knew exactly who he was in relationship to God the Father, and yet he was able to serve others with no thought for himself. That is true humility. We too are called to know who we are in Christ, but we also need to realize that he has given us different measures of faith. In other words, different capacities and different gifts with which to serve him and each other. Paul loved to think of God's people, the church, as being like a human body. Our bodies are made up of all kinds of different parts, and each part has a unique function, but no one part is less or more important than another. 
Think of it this way. Imagine that a man was walking alongside a lake when suddenly he heard a cry for help. Turning around, he looked toward the lake and saw a person drowning in the water. Immediately, he ran to where he could reach the individual and grasping them with his hands, he pulled with his back until they were safely on shore. Now, in that rescue, each of the different members of the man's body had different parts to play. Was one more important than another? No. If it were not for his ears, he wouldn't have heard the cry. Without his eyes, he could not have found the person. He wouldn't have been able to reach them or save them without the different actions of his legs, arms, hands and back. If any one of those different parts of his body had not done its job, the person would have drowned. The same is true in the church. We are all vital to God's rescue plan. All of us are important and it is necessary that we not only do our work, but that we work together in order to accomplish God's purposes. Paul puts it this way in verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging him, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. There is an underlying message in these opening verses of chapter 12. First, Paul is urging us to know ourselves. In order to be truly useful to God's kingdom, we need to make an honest assessment of ourselves without pride or false humility. Secondly, we're to accept the role that God has given us within his body. He has uniquely gifted each of us and we're not to envy another one's gifting. But rather, we're to work together to accomplish all that God wants us to do. The part that you play in God's kingdom might be different to the task he has set before me. We're all different. But being different to someone does not mean that you are any less or more important than they are. Every gift we're given comes from God himself, and they're all gifts according to his grace. The Greek word for the gifts of God's spirit is charismata. And what's important for us to understand is that the root of that word charismata is charis, which is the Greek word for grace. God gifts people differently, but all of his gifts are given out of his grace. They're not given because one person is more deserving than another. And whether we serve publicly or work quietly behind the scenes, we're all equally important to God and to the ability of his church to grow effectively. The final point that Paul makes here is that it's up to each of us to use whatever gift he's bestowed upon us and to exercise it faithfully. Paul highlights seven different gifts in verses 6 through 8 as being worthy of special mention. Prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving to the needs of others, 
Now, I do believe that though some people may be more gifted in one area than another, to some extent we're all called to exhibit these different attributes. For example, I don't think that we can say it's not our job to encourage another person because that's not our gift. For even if there are some who operate in the area of encouragement more readily than others, we're all called to be encouragers. So with that in mind then, let's look at each of these gifts in more detail. Prophecy is a gift that is seen in two different ways. A person who has this gift may at times foretell God's plan for the future. However, this gift is more commonly seen when an individual tells forth the word of God, giving the Lord's message to others so that they may know him more intimately. Honestly, something as simple as sharing the gospel with someone could really be seen as forth-telling God's message to someone else in order to lead them into a deeper knowledge of Him. The next gift Paul mentions is serving, and that's the Greek word diakonia, from which we get the English word deacon. We may not be called to fill the office of deacon in the church, but all of us are called to serve others each day so that they come to know the love of Christ. The gift of serving is not less than any of the other gifts, in case you think it is. We find the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. God chose him for the great honour of being the first martyr of the New Testament, the first believer to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. We're told that Stephen was a man who was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. What was his job in the early church in Jerusalem, though? It was waiting on tables and distributing food to widows. Actually, Stephen could also preach. He could foretell the word of God, but he was known for his wisdom, his compassion and his servant's heart. Another gift Paul mentions here is that of teaching, for God's word not only is to be proclaimed, it's to be explained as well. The encourager is also vital to God's work. I cannot tell you how important this gift is in the body of Christ. People need truthful reassurance and inspiration that spurs them on to live more fully in the power of the Holy Spirit. We all need to put courage in each other, especially these days. Then there is contributing to the needs of others. Christians are also called to simple kindness and to generous living that's motivated for their love of God. Those who give are to do so with no ulterior prideful motive, but rather they're to give for the sheer joy of helping someone else and bringing praise to Christ's name. Paul reminds us in another letter that God loves a cheerful giver. God also gifts people in the area of leadership. You know, it's often very difficult in Christian ministry to get people to serve in a leadership role, and yet it's so necessary. Frequently, people will say that they don't really feel worthy to lead in a particular area, and yet, truth be told, none of us are worthy in our own strength. This is something that God will equip us for. 
I think it's true to say, though, that often people don't want to take on extra responsibility. And I understand that. But we're called to serve Christ with all of our heart, mind and strength. And in whatever way we may be called to lead others in God's family, Paul says that we should do it diligently, carefully, thoughtfully, faithfully. And finally, Paul speaks of showing mercy. This gift, like generosity, is connected with cheerfulness. We're to willingly show gracious kindness to others, forgiving them even as God has forgiven us, remembering that real forgiveness is always based upon love and not on superiority or condescension. Peter puts it very well in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 10 through 11. He says each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. We're called to unity in God's family, and that will only come from a commitment to love one another as he has loved us, with everyone using their diverse gifts and talents to serve one another in humility as needs arise. For God is love, and as we love one another, it is by this All men shall know that we are his disciples. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.